Senior Times Live. The event for people who don't act their age is back in the RDS from April 22nd to 24th. With over 100 exhibits, dance, keep fit, painting, gardening, cooking demonstrations and workshops, advice in tracing your family history, Eric Knowles antique valuations and celebrity guest appearances. It's the event for people who want to be inspired in their retirement. Admission to Senior Times Live is free by registering at seniortimes.ie. Hello, I'm Connor Faulkner and this is Driving Life. Welcome to episode 16, where I meet environmental campaigner and journalist John Gibbons. John and I have sparred a few times on the radio over the years, but I very much enjoyed the chance for a longer and more constructive chat. You can check out previous episodes where I meet people like Dermot Bannon, Teresa Mannion, Paul Williams, Shane Ross, Nuala Carey and others, names you'll know and some you won't have met. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. But now let's meet John. I dropped out to him in his Dundee home and we spoke about the scale of the climate challenge facing us, what Ireland can do and whether we are making progress. Along the way, we learn a little bit more about him, not least the fact that he knows his cars and enjoys his driving. Off we go. Okay. So I'm talking to John Gibbons and um, and drinking his tea in um, a, a beautiful part of the world in Dunleary. Well, it would be beautiful if it wasn't a horrible morning out there. Uh, John, you're very good for, for talking to me. Lovely to meet you. You too, Connor. Likewise. Um, we, we've um, been on radio together uh, on a few occasions in sort of two-hander interviews uh, over the last 10, 15 years, however long you've been active in the environmental space. This is a great setting for me because we're normally just pitched in to give the opposite side, uh, simplistic and quick, punchy opposite side uh, to whatever aspect of the conversation has come up on the day. Um, Does that frustrate you a little bit in your advocacy role? You're always the guy, you know, come along, catastrophize, tell us we're all disastrous and be done in 60 seconds, please, we're going to news. Yeah, there's a little bit of that and, and, and it's still going on with the, when you're pitched in against Michael Healy Ray on any topic. Yeah. And, and I'm sure I'm not the only buddy or the only person with that with that uh, kind of role. Yeah, it, I think that punch and duty aspect uh, to, to the media is a little bit frustrating, I think, for everybody. Uh, there's a bigger story to be told. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose my interest is in trying to communicate as best I can that bigger story about the, the sort of the, the climate and biodiversity uh, crunch that we find ourselves in. And sometimes I think, I suppose my favourite uh, form of journalism really is long form. So yeah. writing for the Business Post or the Irish Times or the Examiner, that's where I kind of, you know, you can really stretch out and explore ideas. Mm. But at the same time, you have to be prepared to defend your ideas. And that's where the the hand-to-hand combat of radio comes in. And I'll be honest, uh, while I might complain about it, I also enjoy it. I'm sure you did too. I'm sure I did too. And, uh, you know, you're always very good at it. And and that came across and your passion came across. But let's wind the clock back a little bit because the climate crisis has been a sort of a slowly boiling frog uh, for 30 years or more uh, and more, depending on when you want to date it. Um, But you began, uh, you didn't, begin life as a, as a climate activist nor anything like it. Tell us a little bit about your own background. You're absolutely right. Nothing could be further than the truth. I guess I'm a good old-fashioned journalist back from qualified in, in, in postgraduate journalism back in the 80s, along with probably most folks in, in mainstream journalism. Uh, went into, as it happened, I, I was in main, newspaper journalism for a couple of years. Mm. Then I diverted into uh, healthcare journalism. Right. Uh, and that went particularly well for me. And so I ended up in 1991 setting up my own business, mm-hmm. which was essentially a publishing business initially in the medical area. That was very successful. So you were uh, trade and technical publication. Yeah, precisely, yeah. So we would have, say, eight or nine uh, healthcare journals and right. publications right now. Uh, then a few years later, we, we sub-specialized and we set up a creative agency. Mm-hmm. So those two businesses have run pretty much side by side for the last 30 years or so. And I've basically, I'm a co-owner of that. So myself and my business partner, basically, I look after the creative side. She looks after the, the publishing businesses and we would have around about 20 staff. And that's been, that's allowed me to 
I guess. And that's the career. I mean, that's that's the job. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people are very surprised when they find that out. They say, well, hang on, are you not the guy on the radio all the time giving out to people and and shaking your fists at them? No, Uh, my job, if you like, and uh, my career has been, in fact, in as I said, in, in building this mm. business and in developing it. And, and so Tough on, business, yeah. um, creative agency and publishing. They, uh, you know, it's an industry that money has sort of faded away from. But you, you're. It's been fine for us, Connor. I'm not going to lie to you. We we have a we've had our niche, and we would be maybe the probably the second biggest operation in, in that field. It's it, it's a niche area. Mm. But I guess the, the nice thing about a niche is once you understand it and once you know your way around it. Uh, there are also high barriers to entry. So yeah. we've been very happy uh, operating in that niche. And one thing I think that, that I brought from medical journalism as I stumbled into environmental journalism is rigor, yeah. science. Because in medicine, what matters are facts, mm-hmm. peer-reviewed research. That's what matters. Opinions, yeah. tittle-tattle, no use. People, you know, when people get into opinions, people die. That's the reality in medicine. And I found that background surprisingly useful when I began to engage in environmental journalism, which is about 18, 19 years ago, which you'll be probably unsurprised coincides with the birth of my first uh, daughter. Right. Because I guess up until that moment, I was quite content to be, uh, you know, your straight up middle class uh, Mm. Dublin business person, former journalist, uh, happy out. And I'll be truthful with you. I thought the environment it, it never crossed my intellectual radar. I had no yeah. interest in it. I didn't read about it. So there must have been a Damascus moment, which I guess we'll get to, because I know that prior to that, you were as the, uh, you told me you drove a, 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 a what, a Toyota Supra? Yeah, a three, a three litre V6 uh-huh. uh, with the roof that popped <coughs> off, a Toyota Supra uh, back in the back in the, in the roaring 90s. In the roaring 90s. The Tiger roaring 90s. 1. That yeah. was your concession to Tiger 1. Exactly. And, uh, Better so, than helicopter lessons. Yeah, I, suppose, I mean, unless you do that was the, the young, free and single phase and, you know, tearing around the countryside. And I, I tell you, not a word of a lie, it never crossed my mind that that there was any limits to what we were doing. As far as I was concerned, I had the money, I, I had done okay, uh, and basically uh, these were the fruits of, of my life. And did you enjoy driving particularly, or was it just one of the fruits? You know, it could have... Yeah, I think the my first nice car was, I bought a little a little car called a Mazda MX-3. Oh, a little sporty thing. Yeah. yeah. Two seater. Yeah. No, it, it was a two plus two, but this was a 1.8 liter uh, straight six. And apparently yeah. it was the smallest six-cylinder production engine in the world. And this, I bought that in 1992, which was the year after I was set up in business. You bought it new? Uh, oh, yeah, brand oh, new. Nice. And uh, a lovely little thing, a real little head-turner. Back in the early 90s when mm-hmm. sports cars were not, not that common, I used to love buzzing around the country. And I obviously wouldn't share with your, your listeners that number of times that all four wheels of that actually yeah. left the road, right? So I was a regular uh, and obviously... Uh, this is just between ourselves, so mm. we can go no further. A bit of a boy racer, kind of. Well, you know, you were. It, it, that's the human male condition, yes, isn't it? it? Is. I mean, there's a, it wouldn't be a stereotype. And I, I was saying to um, Paul Williams, I was chatting to the other day, because he was telling me that when he was a 17-year-old boy racer, he had a really na- nasty crash, and mm. that could have been the end of it there and then. Um, you know, boy racers, being 17 years old and male uh, isn't a character flaw. It's it's sort of a necessary part of the human condition. And, um, you know, much of human progress is sort of made by adventurous young males. But on the road, it's disastrous, literally disastrous. That's for sure. And as I say, thankfully, that, that phase has passed. But I totally agree. I was lucky in, I, I was never involved as a driver in a serious collision, but I was involved as a passenger in a serious uh, accident in 1985, which I should have been killed in. And to this day, I have no idea, there's no reason why I wasn't killed in it. It defies logic. And I often think back to that moment and think, for whatever reason, I got a second chance. And I've tried to view the rest of my life as a bit of a second chance. A sliding doors moment in a sense. uh, If you like, yeah. yeah. And, And I think I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to be grateful for the, the many opportunities, the many breaks, the many privileges that I've had. I also try to check my privilege and realize mm. that I live at a unique time. It, this is a wonderful time to be alive for yes. us. You live in our part of the world, in a prosperous, safe uh, country, at a, at a time of, of 
democracy and broad equality. These are amazing. If you think yeah. of the arch of history, Connor, we live in amazing and unusual times. We do. No, no, uh, no generation in any country anywhere has ever been as lucky. We, 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 we live with an emperor's privilege. Uh, we have health care that's tripled our life expectancy. We live, bar wrinkles, including the current one, we've we, we lived through 70 years of European peace, which is you know, unprecedented in all of history. Um, we, we may still live in a world where slavery exists, where, where poverty exists, um, but we also live in a world where, where humanity accepts that that's an injustice that has to change. Um, so we do live in absolutely unique times. Uh, we can fly across the ocean at 36,000 feet and um, complain that the coffee is cold uh, without sort of any sense of perspective. Um, and sometimes I think that colours the environmental debate as well, uh, which we will get to. So you grew up a little bit. Um, uh, what brought you to the environmental uh, conversation? Was it the fact that this was just worsening evidently in the world? Or might you, have might you have burned with equal passion about, say, global poverty or something else? First of all, I, I truly can't say. Uh, I honestly felt I was, I'd done my, my spin in journalism and I was quite happy uh, to have moved sideways into, into mm. business. And, and I did a little hobby journalism, for example, I presented, it says in the papers and, and Morning Ireland for a yeah. couple of years, just for the crack. Yeah, very right? good. You know, get up at four o'clock in the morning, test yourself, right? Yeah. Have a 750 word script, ready for broadcast at five past seven. The little red light goes on. I think you know the book. I do, right? indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah so exactly. I, right, always, yeah. I was always a little bit of a, a, a red light junkie. So yeah. I, I like the excitement, I admit it. Now, I'm not sure. I had never planned to come back to, to full-time journalism or to anything mm. remotely like, and I never saw myself as a campaigner. Yeah. Then I stepped into this other world, if you like, completely by accident. I read a book, the book was called Something new under the sun. It was essentially a, a history of the biosphere from nineteen, sorry, from nineteen hundred to nineteen ninety nine. So mm. it was a retrospective history of the twentieth century. Yeah. With written by the way by a geography professor. <laughs> Very little reference to global warming. It was mostly about the the impacts over that century of the human footprint on the on the globe. Yeah. Now it took my breath away, Connor. Mm. It spun my head. Very dense read, maybe 450 pages, yeah. lots of references. I got to the end and went, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. So I put, the, I remember I put the book down, I put it away, thought about little else for about a month, Yeah. picked it up again, this time with my, with my, uh, my, uh, second read, bit yeah, more, with my marker, my, my yellow, my yellow yeah. pen and with my journalist hat on, I said, no, this has got to be wrong. Yeah. I read it again. This time with a notebook beside me, went through it, made lots of notes, followed up on various claims and mm. statements, and then I did some work on them. And guess what? They were right, and I was wrong. And I yeah. was, I was just, I was knocked for six. I couldn't believe I'd gotten to the age in kind of you know whatever around about nearly forty, without this penny. I just thought. Yeah. How can you miss something? I mean, it's like a red pill, blue pill moment. Around about that time, the globe was awakening to the same issue wasn't it yeah a little bit i mean this is i guess the year i'm thinking about was probably 2002 2003 if you think the first one i think where people that there had been moments for example you think of rio in, in 1992 yeah. and you know and so on but they were kind of false starts to tell mm. you the truth probably the first time that the penny began to sort of uh, drop within the media was 2007 and that's when we had the the ar4 the IPCC's fourth assessment report. Yeah. That one really did shake people up a little bit. Yeah. And there was a breakthrough there. And by the time that arrived, and also, of course, uh, the film, An Inconvenient Truth. Yeah, Al Gore's film. Yeah, yeah, in about 2006. And it really had an impact on a lot of people. A lot of people I spoke to. Do you know, know talk about a sliding doors moment, John. Mm. Those hanging chads in Florida um, that, that, that swung that election. Um, it, 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 it still would have been a challenged world, but perhaps a very different world if we'd had President Al Gore um, during and post 9-11. Yeah. Um, now, you know, maybe it would have been also been a disaster, but you can dream that it might have been, uh, you know, we might have got a, a decade's head start on the climate challenge and also maybe avoided Iraq. Uh, and not just Iraq. I mean, Iraq was the touch paper that set the entire Middle East in flames. Yeah. And you can go through Syria. Egypt, Libya, the whole thing went up in flames. Once, once the once Iraq, which was almost like a linchpin in mm. the region and a secular 
And yet, well, yeah, yeah, imperfect, uh, clearly. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, deeply imperfect. But it was like uh, Yugoslavia, like Tito's Yugoslavia, yeah. it was a, a secular linchpin. And when you pulled it out, mm-hmm. chaos ensued. And sure, and, and we won't, we don't need to rerun. Uh, well, we can't get it back, can we? No. We can't get it back. We, we can't get back the last decades. Yeah. Um, in terms of where we are now, there, there were a number of different sort of um, catastrophic scenarios laid out for global warming. Um, you know, 2%, 2.5%, 3%, 4% and, and the likely impact on human population if that occurred. Um, I think the science now broadly says that we're clearly not going to get 1.5%. We will... Degrees. Oh, sorry, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Degrees, yeah. degrees, degrees. Um, so we're clearly not going to get 1.5 degrees. Um, we're probably not also going to go as far as 4 because, the, you know, despite setbacks there are huge technology improvements that are happening everything from carbon capture to carbon capture just to be clear hasn't happened anywhere well i know but i mean proof of concept is occurring i mean it it, 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 i'm not saying that that Mm. the technology is going to come in like a white knight and solve the problem by the way i wish it i wish it yeah i've looked into ccs in detail problem with let's just say right you've got a you're burning coal. Let's say you've got a coal factory. Yeah. Let's say Money Point. And we, we decide to convert Money Point to CCS, which mm. is so we're going to capture the carbon at source. Brilliant. It adds so much to the cost. It costs you about 30 yeah. to 40% of your of your energy and adds so much to the cost. And you then got to liquefy pipe and store underground perpetually mm. the millions of tons of liquid CO2 from the process. And you have to store that forever. Meanwhile, the cost of the electricity from your coal mine has doubled or trebled because of CCS. The reason why the industry has talked about CCS but hasn't done it is it makes fossil energy, basically it destroys it commercially. And that's why the smokestacks, Connor, will continue to to puff out CO2 directly into the atmosphere because carbon capture is too expensive. And it always will be. Well, um, okay, maybe. And your expertise on that is greater than mine. But what I was trying to sound an optimistic note is coal does appear to be diminishing, uh, certainly in Ireland. I mean, yeah. Coal is about the dirtiest way that we can make electricity. In Ireland, peat actually trumps even, even coal. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, but peat is clearly finite for us as well. Yeah. Uh, natural gas is a funny one because it, it's it's less of a climate challenge, but it's finite. Uh, and, you, you know, long term we have to... Well, it's not like burning coal okay i'll just as a technical point right what we call natural gas of course is fossil methane yeah right now methane is a funny old gas when you light it 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 burns relatively cleanly now it it, it emits lots of co2 Mm. but it burns much cleaner as you say versus coal or anything else however in the process of drilling for transporting and using um fossil methane, you get what are called fugitive emissions. It's a very volatile gas. Yeah. Now, when you hit about 3% fugitive methane emissions from that, you're now at the climate impact of coal. Because methane, famously, is a much more efficient greenhouse gas. greenhouse gas. And of course, that's in Ireland. Our big challenge isn't so much, uh, as you know, fugitive methane. It is uh, methane from our river and turret. Yes, enteric fermentation, uh, the the, the euphemism. It's it's the herd. And methane is also leaching out of the thawing tundra. I mean, there's there's lots and lots of apocalyptic scenarios Mm. that could really make you despair. Um, But on the good side of the ledger, um, human behavior, you were talking talking about the arc of history bending towards justice, which I think is a Martin Luther King mm. uh, quote, um, and it's certainly bending towards improved environmental efficiency. Now, whether we'll, whether we'll head off the disaster we're heading for, you know, next few decades perhaps will tell us a race mm. between technology and behaviour versus expansion. But in Europe, at least, some countries have managed to start decoupling carbon use from economic growth, which I think is one of the real keys. I I'm struggling with it it a little bit. I'll give you a small example, right? If we were to hold up a a beacon of, uh, I suppose, the the green transition in Europe, I would probably pick Norway. Yeah, 80%. 80% of it's fabulous. They also have this amazing uh, national wealth uh, fund. Amazing Mm -hmm. thing. It's got over a trillion euros in it. And this is a national wealth fund that is owned by the people of Norway. Yeah. And it's fabulous. And that will secure them into the 21st century. And as you well, know, we have um, a national debt. Yeah, they have yeah, a national They, they have a national uh, treasure tr- pot. Every euro in that treasure pot 
has been made by selling oil to everybody else. Yes. So essentially, they have greened themselves and enriched themselves and secured their children's future by selling billions of gallons of oil to everybody else. Yeah. Now that's your Faustian bargain. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And humanity has made a Faustian bargain with yeah. with, with with oil over two hundred mm-hmm. years, um, and and you you can see what um, you know you can see both sides of that ledger. It is a fantastically convenient power source. Mm-hmm. When we were using it at the scale that was being used in the 19th and early 20th century, um, you know, even then you could see in the long term it was bound to be finite because it's taken the globe 300 million years to make it. And you know, the rate at which we're using it, it can't last more than a couple of centuries. Mm-hmm. But it was probably a good choice for the 19th, 20th century. Um, but we then got hooked on it. It became humanity's heroin and lots of other stuff that could have been developed to replace it just wasn't for reasons of e- yeah no you're e- right e- i mean e- i think the cheap oil basically washed away um investment in for example renewable technologies that we could have been on this road 50 60 years yeah. ago when we needed to be uh i mean i i recently re- reread a book from 1972 called the limits to growth yeah and pollution was part of it climate change uh, less part of it but it was mostly about the, the accumulation of, if you like, human impacts, particularly expressed as depletion of key resources mm. and, the, and the rapid accumulation of, of pollution. And they put those two together and their projection was that by mid 21st uh, century, 50, 70 years out, we would be starting to, to hit into a very difficult uh, mm. situation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we won't worry about the ringing phone. Yeah. And, you and, and everything, that's what I mean. You turn everything off yeah. and then there's some other bloody device in the room. Well, you, you and I are both red light junkies. So yes. we know we, we, we know well about, yeah. the, uh, about mm. the ringing phone. Yeah. It's gas actually sometimes ringing with journalists because it could be a Sunday afternoon and I'm playing golf and you come off, you have to come off the golf course and you have seven missed calls from the same journalist. Mm. Um, so then you're ringing back and he goes, oh, sorry to bother you. <laughs> he was clearly, clearly not that not, sorry not, not after that seven sorry, years no, exactly um st- story of our lives um but i i, I was looking yeah. for an optimistic take mm. on yeah. on where technology is bringing us i mean i was listening to david back williams the other day if we were having this conversation in the 1860s maybe mm. we might be delighted at the at the use of uh, buried uh, oil i think we would because yeah. it was replacing whale oil you know it yeah. stops us stops us killing whales mm. um but you know so it may have been an appropriate technology choice but it became heroin and we're still stuck on the damn stuff and um, the replacement technologies we hope will help human behavior is going to have to help as well um, there's a global conversation which i've hear, heard you have there's also an irish conversation mm. um so in, in in if you're a citizen in ireland Part of you has to say, well, look, you know, I am so tiny. I am such a tiny part of a tiny country. Um, you know, if I studiously take a bicycle to work today and, and you know, don't pick up a, a carrier bag in the shop, um, the, the, the difference other than the virtue signaling of it is it's so tiny that why would I be motivated to, to do anything at all? Sure. Okay, let's say you're a citizen in a province in China the same size as Ireland, with four or five million people. Do you say the same argument? In fact, if I was that citizen in in, uh, that province in China, I would say, well, hang on. The Irish have have, uh, their contribution to to this crisis is far greater than mine. Mm. They have used all this fossil energy to lift themselves out out of poverty and into wealth and comfort. No more than the Norwegians. Norwegians. And I in China or I in India, why, you know, why should, first of all, why should I do anything? Because the Irish are are basically, the average Irish person is putting out the equivalent of 12 to 13 tonnes of CO2. How, how does that score per capita? I mean, poorly, I would imagine. Uh, the second or third worst in the European Union. Yeah. And bear in mind, the European Union is among the highest emitters in the world. Yeah. So on a global scale, if I were to sort of translate this into, into I suppose, the language of, of global equity, because let, let's just be crazy for a moment and imagine that every life on Earth mattered as much as every other life. Okay? <laughs> that also a, would be a, a first in all human history. Yes, it one would. We can aspire I know, to. but I'm going to take it just as a, as a sort of a, a proposition. Mm. right? And let's say that there's 7.8 billion of us now, and let's say that we all mattered as much to each other, and that we were all of equal value. Yeah. Right? Uh, because let's face it, we all matter to those around us. Yeah. Really, okay. So if we took that view, then what we would have to do 
is to, to divide up the remaining global carbon budget and assign that to every individual person. And mm -hmm. so, so Connor gets this slice of the budget, John gets this, uh, the person in India gets this, the person, and so on. We divide it up and then we figure out how much more carbon can you or I or this person in India burn for say the next hundred years or yeah. the remainder of our life. Now, when you do that equation, what you find is that Ireland has already, we've torn through our share of the global carbon budget. Mm -hmm. Let me let me give you a slightly different way of thinking about this. There's a concept called global overshoot. I'm sure you're familiar with yeah, it. This yeah. is basically where uh, the, it's calculated. That, for example, World Overshoot Day occurs, I think it's in about the 27th of July mm -hmm. this year. That's the day at which the, the population of the world is no longer living on that year's resources, but it's eating into non-renewable sure. resources. Okay. In Ireland, that day occurs on the 27th of April. So we have used our share, our fair share of the world's resource, of the yeah. world's renewable resources, Connor, by the 27th of April. We're living in so ecological for, so overdraft. For, so for us to have a sustainable footprint mm. going forward, mm. we must reduce carbon use as a handy catch-all, because yeah. you're including methane yeah. and all other activities. Yeah. But 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 uh, uh, the dirt of our footprint mm. must be reduced by two-thirds. more? It, well, uh, on your April yeah. analogy, uh, for, us to, for us to be even conceivably yeah. sustainable. Yeah. So there have got to be ways of doing that, mm. improving the footprint through technology or reduced usage, etc. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw one thing at you, which is an old conversation, um, and it's nuclear. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, at the moment... Ireland doesn't have nuclear energy and, you know, Ireland doesn't have defence capability either. Um, but in both cases, aren't we bloody glad that France has um, or, or that other countries do? So is there a touch of moral bankruptcy in, in, in us just saying we're too clean to use nuclear? And also then, how good is it as a solution? Because right now in Europe, I'm glad France has lots of nuclear energy. And I wish Germany did, um, because that would be very useful in the current context of the Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, I'm in a minority within the so-called environmental movement in that I completely concur. Uh, I don't believe when you're in a hole, as we assuredly are, yeah. you don't get to pick and choose your favorite low energy technology. Yeah. You take whatever the hell works. And what we know for sure is that nuclear technology has worked pretty well when mm. it's been used at scale. You mentioned France. Yeah. France has 59 nuclear power stations. They produce between 70 and 80% of the electricity in France. Uh, mm -hmm. with And the average French citizen's uh, carbon footprint from the energy system is the lowest in Europe. Yeah. Right? Also, what and of course that goes back to the 1970s when we were hit with the oil shocks. Yes. And the French government, using their policy of dirigisme, where they wanted to centrally direct things, they said, mm. right, we don't want to be dependent on oil from the Middle East. Yes. So they directed their economy to build out nuclear. Now, unfortunately, the rest of us hummed and hawed and oohed and ahed. Yeah. And basically, for example, we switched from oil to coal, which was from which is disastrous. the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. So the French went down that route, uh, and as I said, they, they have decarbonized their electricity system. They have mm. not decarbonized other parts of, the, of their society. The analogy used about Germany is heartbreaking. Yeah. Fukushima was a, a disaster, primarily by the failure of backup diesel engines to maintain cooling in that you system. Know, in a sense, yeah. Chernobyl was much closer, mm. um, but it was a bit, a bit less spooky because we could, we could tell ourselves that that was in a, you know, a dysfunctional pseudo... The, the, uh, the crumbling state, Soviet the Union crumbling in Soviet Empire. Yeah. Uh, where, but Japan is the most mm. advanced nation on Earth. It is, it but on the other hand, there, yeah, Japan is also in the ring of fire, and it was idiotic of the Japanese authorities to, first of all, to sort or to locate the nuclear power station in basically in a, in a tsunami zone. But mm. worse than that, their backup diesel engines, it was their flooding and failure that caused the problem and the explosion. The, yeah. the actual power plant itself would have been fine had they simply moved their diesel engines a few few kilometers inland and put them up on stilts. Yeah. The diesel engines would have continued to run. That was their backup system. It was really poor engineering. And from my recollection, the Japanese designed Fukushima to cope with a, I think it was an 8.7. Which uh, is yeah, pretty severe, but yeah. severe, but foreseeable yeah. event. Oh, absolutely. In the ring of fire, of course yeah. it is. And they got a 9.0. And, mm. and, and so that was an engineering failure. But the response to that, to, and Japan, by the way, has done what Germany has done. They shut down their nuclear uh, plants and they have increased their imports of fossil fuels. And they've increased their burning, their shipping in oil and coal from all over the place. 
And it just, I don't know, I mean, you know, as somebody said, after the Titanic sank, we didn't stop using ships. We sort of thought, well, yeah. maybe we need better ships, maybe we need better safety. But you don't stop using ships because one sinks. Yeah, uh, but in democracies especially, mm. they're just the power of public reaction. Because yeah. you, you could rationally point out that Fukushima's in, in the Ring of Fire. Yeah. Or, uh, um, uh, Ireland is one of the most seismologically stable countries in the whole world. As that's is why, Germany, by the way. Yeah, as is Germany. Yeah. That's why data centers and stuff yeah. uh, lo- love Ireland. We're, we're, we're you know, climate-wise and, uh, and um, seismically, we're very stable. But it would feel to the public like waiting to lose the lotto. And um, that, you know, everything is working fine until the day it isn't. And it's no use having somebody tell you afterwards that it was the diesel this or the engineers that because you've lost the lotto at that stage of a nuclear catastrophe. I guess, uh, you know, the, the good people of France have lived uh, with, I'll say, 59 nuclear stations now. We regularly holiday in France. Yeah. We often take the car over to France and... So we've driven past nuclear power stations, uh, we've stayed near them, and nobody's losing the lottery over there. Not only are they not losing the lottery, but they're pretty happy about it. And I, I take your point, but I think there has been an unfortunate conflation in the public mind between nuclear energy and nuclear war. Now, yeah. take an organization like Greenpeace, mm. right? That was the, the essential kind of conflation of green yeah. and peace. Yes. And the two pushed together. We are pro environment and we're anti war. And by the way, they're two great things to be. Mm. But that. Well, I don't know anybody who's anti environment and, and pro war. Well, I know a few people that are pro war, okay. but I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. As, as a rule, it's a great idea. Unfortunately, in the middle, in between those two positions, uh, you know, some, some things got thrown out. And I believe that a rational discussion on nuclear energy got thrown out. For example, right now, the US, 20% of the electrical uh, power in the US is from nuclear. Mm. They have a part from Three Mile Island, which is, again, uh, uh, um, relatively minor in the scheme of things. Yeah. They've had uh, pretty much clean nuclear energy for 50 years. Yes. Um, you know, is anybody really saying we should shut that down? And if you're going to shut it down and you plan, as Germany did, to replace it, say, with lignite, I mean, essentially, that that's, you know, that's... Uh, Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah. Okay. So if if, if yeah. it rings, we can snip we can snip yeah. the rings out easy peasy. Yeah. Um. So so nuclear for Ireland a, a stifled conversation mm. for, for 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 disappointing reasons, um. And we may come back to it, and Ireland may come back Amen. to it. Uh, in the meantime, people are being advised, for example, to buy electric cars. Would love to see um our fleet, a la Norway's, um rapidly transition to electric cars. Uh, when we do, if we imagine we complete that, uh, that also comes with enormous challenges, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, you need the electricity from somewhere, yeah. for starters. You do. And of course, there's huge resource implications in building out a fleet of... Our, I mean, are we really going to build a billion electric cars in this world? I'm not sure. Take Ireland, as, as, as you, you know, uh, we doubled our fleet uh, of privately owned cars from about a million in, I think it was 1996, yeah. to well over two million. And that's a lot of cars on a little island. Yeah. Now, I think, and, and again, you, you know these stats really well, your average car spends, I think it's 95, 96% of its life parked up, yeah. either on the street or in front of your house, costing you a lot of money. And if I may quote some AA uh, data here, which I often use mm. in radio discussions to, uh, on this very point, um, the average family, it's costing them about 10 grand a year yeah. to keep one car on the road, 20 grand to keep two cars on the road. At every time the AA published those figures, mm. so do it every July, I think mm. it was, um, and people would say, oh, that's rubbish. Yes. Like, that's they just no total exaggeration. how expensive yeah. it is, because they think that running a car means putting diesel in the tank. That mm. is only the tip of it. The depreciation, your, you, your 30 grand car is losing value you can almost go and watch it lose value. Yeah, literally. Yeah, there's I, no I, asset that depreciates quite like a yeah, car. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, and we put that, uh, put all of that into the stre- in, into the spreadsheet, and and it is true. Uh, and yet, people still need it. So you know, yeah. uh, uh, humans being to some degree rational animals, they wouldn't do it if, if if they didn't feel they needed it. Although, mind you, Connor, look at the look at the effort and look at the expense and look at the vast marketing money spent by the motor industry to convince us that our our spiritual fulfillment, our sense of freedom and adventure can be relieved by 
owning a car and driving a car. You know those magical empty roads you keep seeing in the car ads? I'd love to drive on some of those magical roads. You should be advertising for the bloody roads. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right, I mean, it, it, marketing perceptions mm-hmm. and, and the scale of the of the automobile industry mm-hmm. is absolutely gargantuan and, 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 and they can think long term. So they can absolutely, no more than the tobacco companies before them. Um, their sheer scale means that they can shape societies in and some ways. As we saw with uh, Dieselgate, for example, they're yeah. also prepared to tell a pack of lies, uh, push, and, and also, like it's often been said in Ireland, oh, we, we were told to change the diesel back in 28, 2010, and, yeah. and that turned out to be just as bad or maybe worse. Absolutely, we were lied to. That's the thing that it Well, you could do a whole podcast on, and in fact, it has been done, and I might, sure, and I yeah. might do it yet. Yeah. But I, I shouldn't be shocked. But, but one of the things that was just astonishing was the venality of it, the, mm. the petting, the, the pettiness of the lies that were uh, perpetuated and then the scale of the consequence um, uh, but listen we might do we might that in, in the meantime VW yeah. whether they're uh, whether you believe they're reformed uh, or not uh, the thing about big capital is even when it's flawed it can be pointed in the right it can be mm-hmm. channeled like water flowing um, you know you might drown the odd time mm-hmm. but you can get it to turn the wheel that you want it to turn and VW are investing billions I think it's about four billion a year in electric car technology. I drove my first, uh, only for literally half an hour, I drove the the ID4. ID4, yeah. The ID4, just last week I took it for a spin. A friend of mine has one down in down Leitrim, so we took it for a spin. It's the SUV-shaped one, is that the yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, and he was a little bit disappointed, I think, with the range of it, but I think there is a longer range of the yeah. version available. Now, the weekend just gone, I got a 36-hour loan of the BMW i4. Very nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I took it for a spin down the country. I took it, well, first of all, up the Dublin mountains, around the Sally Gap. I was having flashbacks to my, to my boy <laughs> racer youth. And I'll be honest I hope with, all four wheels stayed on um, the ground. At least three were on the ground at any <laughs> given time. But I have to say, a beautiful car. I Again, I once upon a time, I was a, a BMW owner, had a very fine 5 Series estate for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was a harken back to that. And this is all electric. And I have to say, They've done a beautiful job with it. Yeah. Uh, the range, depending on how you drive it, I'm guessing maybe 430, 440. They claim five something, but it's yeah. not really. Well, a handy ratio for the claims. Mm. The manufacturers are all like this. Yeah. Um, so uh, as they used to with miles per gallon, uh, whenever you see an electric car range, first thing you do is knock about 20, 25% off that. Yeah. Just as your starting yeah. calculation. Then for winter driving conditions, knock 25% off it again. Yeah. And that might be disappointing compared to your brochure, mm. but it's still pretty reliable. Get me from Dublin to Sligo. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. I've been an all-electric driver uh, for four years. In fact, four years next month. And so gotten used to managing the range. And I've been lucky that the car I have has a pretty good range. Uh, And I've taken that car to France, all, all the way around France. And uh, did three and a half thousand kilometers and wrote, wrote a piece about it. It's a Tesla, is it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. Nice. It was a it was a a model a three year old Model S that I bought in twenty eighteen, and uh, it, and again it wasn't you know oh I must have a Tesla. It was in twenty eighteen. It was the only car that offered a decent range. To be honest, yeah. there was nothing else available at that time. It was more expensive than more than I ever spent on a car or would ever want to spend on yeah. a car. Uh, but I. I really felt that I, you know, if I'm not going to do it, who is? Yeah. Okay. So I sort of, you know, took one for the team. Kind of. Took one for the team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, you know, what's going to persuade the team to do it is not so much, you know, do your bit for the environment. Mm-hmm. It'll be 
A, they are fantastic cars. It is Amazing just in cars. every way a superior technology. Only costs about a third the amount to service because mm. there's so less, so little to go wrong. It's That's just right. every sense of superior technology, better driving experience. Mm. And also it'll be the only car you can get. Um, they just won't yeah. be making. Um, and if you're thinking about buying, say, you know, you're thinking, let's say you've got a budget and you're going to spend 50 grand on, a, on, a, on your next car. And lots of people, as you know, are spending yeah. that and lots more. Indeed. Lots more. Uh, and... If, you, if you're heading out to, say, you're replacing your car in 2023, 20, 24, 25, that's the next two or three years, you've got to think that there is a cliff coming, and that cliff is 2030, beyond mm. which new car sales in Ireland will be electric only. So yeah. if you're still heavily invested in a, a internal combustion technology at that stage, you're going to take a financial bath in the late 2020s. Yeah. So might be a good time to think about it, uh, not because you're a do-gooder or a holy joe, but because it's smart. Yeah, and then collectively between us, diesel will have a long tail. Mm. I mean, you said yourself, it, you know, where we are now, <clears throat> it makes more sense to continue using the existing car fleet than, than to go and make yeah. new cars. So diesel will have a long mm. tail, but we will complete the move. And then maybe that'll take the poor motorist out of the climate conversation. We might, so. st- might still be in the urban congestion conversation, the but public I'm, transport conversation. I'm glad you brought up the congestion thing because I, I think it's critical to say we're not going to replace 2 million ICEs with 2 million EVs. There's no way. I mm. think that this so-called much talked about, but nobody's come up with the plan yet, modal shift, where we move people, not by compulsion, but because we've given them the good alternatives. Yeah. And also, by the way, we've made uh, road sharing for, for other forms of transport. And I think mm. both of us, I think, will concede that the private motorist has really have the lion's share of not just the road space in mm. Ireland and the vast spending, by the way, that we the, put the into the infrastructure, infrastructure spending, yeah. vast spending. Because remember, if you're on the 46A this morning, your tax is paying for a network of national roads and motorways that you're not actually benefiting from. So if you're if you're a if you're a public transport user, your yeah. tax is paying basically for the guy in the car. Well, I'm a bit more holistic than that. Uh, I mean, the M50, for example, carries I think ninety percent of Ireland's freight. I mean, infrastructure is is infrastructure, and we all benefit from mm. it. But the point is still a fair okay. one. And, and you know, our cities in particular will be much much better served. I mean, I I said that the private car should only ever be a guest in a city and should. Feel like a guest inside the canals In, i would yeah. think that other than the occasional taxi uh, and cars for people with disabilities and so on i see no reason to have private cars inside the canals in Dublin. And the French, for example, are moving in that direction at 100 miles an hour, if you'll pardon the pun. Yeah, I know, but the French also have a metro system. I mean, Madrid built a metro system while Dublin was talking about ours. Yeah. Um, so, so frustrations there. But I expect in these conversations, um, it, it, they can get a little heated in the pub, mm. but most people are in kind of sort of 90% uh, agreement. Yeah. Um, so you wonder then what the inertia is stopping these things happening a little faster. Yeah, I think, uh, the, I believe that some people say the greatest force in the universe is gravity. I believe the greatest force in the universe is what you've just described, it's inertia. Yeah. It is the tendency to do today what we did yesterday. Now, mm. I'll give you a tiny example. Um, you know, I found like a lot of other people, I was put on a few COVID kilos, right? <laughs> I wasn't too happy about it, right? Uh, so I decided I've got to change my habit and mm. get walking and do my 10,000 steps and so on. Boy, it is amazing how difficult it is to change your habits. Now, yeah. when you get over the, the hump, it's not so bad. Well, when you've but, invested six weeks or something. Oh, yeah. There's, re- a, there's a magical point at which you have to to force yourself to do behavior until that behavior becomes, if you like, ingrained. It's, yeah. a, it's the habit thing. Yeah. Now, you then have to force yourself to stop. Yes, well, almost, you're absolutely right. I've gone out here at, at night walking because I've been mm. so missing the the, the the endorphin hit from it, but it takes effort to get off your butt and get out. And I think the same way we have this tremendous inertia. Uh, it's the inertia that says, well, I already have a diesel. Yeah. I already have a gas boiler. I don't want to change. And that inertia, Connor, in my experience, often then spills over into being very annoyed with people like me saying, yeah. oh, you should be changing this, should be changing that. Now, you might say, we need to find a better way of saying it. And I agree, I'm always open to a better way of making my argument. But I do find sometimes 
that you're... Do, do you yeah. get accused of catastrophizing? Because I'll tell you, this may be an unfair analogy, but I think a lot of people get vaguely annoyed with some of the health advice. Mm. So when you're kind of thinking, you know, I agree alcohol is bad, mm. but, you know, I, I, I'm, now, I'm now having my third pint on the day of a rugby match. Mm. Am I a binge drinker? Yeah. And if I'm a binge drinker, then, you know, is that does that word just become devalued? Do you know, um, I think that's a great analogy because I've certainly had my third pint on at a rugby match or out with a, a good friend and I have read exactly what you've read and I'm looking at it and going, but I have a good idea of what my safe capacity is. I've reached this age in my life. Yeah. I've enjoyed alcohol as a friend over yeah. the years and and not, you know, as, as a, a social, whatever you want to call it, lubricant. Uh, I know my limits and I would agree with you. If I hear somebody on the radio telling me, oh, you're a binge drinker, you need to stop drinking alcohol, I kind of find, well, I need to stop listening to stupid advice. Uh, yeah, I take exactly, that. Exactly. So I think we do need to be careful. So are the climate Cassandras doing that? Yeah, I wish they were because I guess I'm a bit of a climate Cassandra. I wish, and there's nothing I wish more fervently, Connor, than to be completely dead wrong about what I've been banging on about for mm. 15 years. Most people who have a hobby horse, right? <laughs> they want to be right. And not only do they want to be right, but they want to convince you that they're right. Yeah. I don't. I read extensively, but I also read from the quote other side. Unfortunately, mm. in the climate argument, there isn't really another side, unless you want to listen to Fox News or something. Yeah, well, there's a sinister other side, other side yeah. in the sense that there is, in fact, sort of murky PR money looking to looking to poison the well of conversation. Precisely. You described the tobacco industry earlier, and that was co-opted by the fossil fuel industry, yeah. the so-called tobacco strategy. It is also, by the way, being co-opted by the lives, The global livestock industry has done exactly the same thing. Mm. They've co-opted the same tobacco strategies uh, to confuse and to befuddle. And it is important, but... To answer your question, am I a catastrophist? What we're looking down the barrel of is the basically, we, to, to do the numbers very briefly, we're at about 1.1, 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial. Now, mm. that doesn't sound like somebody listened to us this afternoon saying, ah, don't be daft, John. Sure, the temperature in Ireland changes from, you know, 5 degrees yeah. this morning to 15 degrees this afternoon. You're being ridiculous. Let me give you an analogy that draws from my medical background. Mm. Right. Your core temperature right now if I was to push a thermometer into your ear, it's 37 degrees. Yeah, ideally, yeah, yeah, sure. It will. Yeah. If you're healthy, yeah. it's 37. Now, if I pushed a thermometer into the ear of somebody in Australia today, their temperature would be 37. Yeah. If I did the same thing in China, 37. So guess what? Our homeostasis as a mm. species is at about 37 degrees centigrade. Yeah. Now, if your core temperature, not the outside temperature, your core temperature rises to, say, 38, 39 you're in fever. You've got a fever. Yeah. If it rises to 39, 40 and stays there, you die. Mm. It's as simple as that. That's how critical your core temperature is to your well-being. Now, yeah. you might be outside for a half an hour and get very cold and come back in, but that doesn't really affect your yeah. core temperature. And for example, if you get frostbite, it's because your body has withdrawn blood from your extremities to protect your core temperature. Mm. Because that 37 degrees is the zone in which all your organs live. If you change that temperature up or down outside yeah. of a very narrow band, you die. Yeah. Now, so the, so 1.2 or 1.5. We have gone outside. The, the global core temperature, Connor, has shifted more in the last 50 years than in the preceding couple of thousand years. Yeah. And we know this. We know this. And there, there, like there was a talk about muddying of the mm. waters in some cases deliberately. There was ambiguity about that debate if you looked for it going mm. back a while. If you looked for it, yeah. But it, but it is thoroughly resolved now. Yeah. And, you know, bar those who believe the earth is flat, um, climate change is real, human behavior is causing it. There's no, no longer a debate. There might be a debate now between optimists and pessimists as to whether technology is pulling it far enough away mm. from the brink or whether uh, inertia is, it, it means that it's inevitable. Yeah, a lot of our technologies are, are actually driving the problem uh, and therefore hoping for technology to fix the problems that are often propelled by technology, I think to me is, is engaging in, in, in unreasonable hope. And I think mm. we, you know, there's things we should be hopeful about, right? What should we be hopeful about? We should be hopeful that the, re the, the things that would help us to resolve this, this crisis, and to me, this isn't a crisis. It isn't a climate crisis mm. about temperatures and things. It's a crisis of identity. I okay. think we have lost our way in the world. 
Right. I'm sorry if I sound like an old time preacher. Well, you know, we did say, didn't yeah. we, at the start of the conversation mm-hmm. that we've never been a more privileged group of people yeah. and we've, we yeah. we are we stand on the shoulders of others, but mm-hmm. we also stand at the apex of human civilization in terms of everything that humanity has achieved, rights, justice, mm-hmm. technology, medicine, everything. Unfortunately, that apex underneath our feet stands the largely ruined natural world. And I'll translate that into numbers, right? Since 1970, and 1970 is a good benchmark year because that was really the year, for example, that the US EPA was set up. It's mm. the year of global environmental awareness. So let's take what's happened in the 50 years since 1970. Yeah. Right. First of all, the number and of not so much of species, but the total number of wild mammals on mm. Earth has declined from 1970 to 2020. That's a 50 year period. Yeah. 1970, by the way, is the year I started in primary school. So this right. isn't ancient history, yeah. right? So in that 50 year period, chunk of my life, we have lost 68% of the total wild animals in the world in 50 years. So we are living in a mass extinction. Precisely. This is, the scientists call this the sixth mass global yeah. extinction. I, w- I was reading that, uh, you know, a, a, a future archaeologist in, 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 you know, a couple of million years time, yeah. the way that they'll date it will be the radioactivity because of, of nuclear testing in the 20th century yeah. has put down a new layer like the iridium layer from mm. the dinosaur extinction. And, and as they sift through that, and that layer it'll correlate with a mass be, extinction. It yeah. will be, that layer will only be a few millimeters thick. Yeah, and it will correlate with a mass extinction. Yes, it will. Now, we're in the mass extinction and the strange thing about this is we're so disconnected from nature that we think that we can actually somehow or other persist beyond the mass extinction, which is a very strange idea. Mm. Uh, now, if I switch species for a second or switch uh, phyla, and let's look at the insect kingdom, right? Mm. Now, insects have ruled the world for 400 million years. Yeah. They were here 150 million years before the dinosaurs. Yes. They have survived the, the, the global mass extinction event 65 million years ago. Mm. They bounced back. Insects are undoubtedly the great survivors of mm. the last half a billion years. Yeah. Now, a German study was published in 2017 that found in the preceding 25 years in a nature reserve in Germany, yeah. a country, by the way, with good ecological rules, far yeah. better than ours. Yeah. 78% of all the flying insects in Germany disappeared in 25 years. Yeah. Now, that's an apocalypse. Now, how did that happen? Pesticides, mm. land use change, light lighting, lighting at night, for example, has completely destroyed their navigational ability. Have we become all of those things clearly true? Yeah. You know, from everything mm. from DDT to yeah. um, far neonicotinoids, yeah. uh, glyphosate. We've gone to war with the natural world, and of course, insects. We don't even like insects, and we oh, they're creepy. We, yeah, yeah, we find them kind of annoying and creepy, and we 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 have pretty much pushed them out of the world, out yeah. of our world. Yeah. Now. There is a growing awareness, I think, that that was that you know of the sense to which that was a mistake. Mm. So you can look look at things that were done previously and say, "Oh my God, how could they be so short sighted?" Mm. Um, but it feels like we're not making those mistakes again because there's an appreciation that the the, the natural world is integrated. And if we think about twenty first and twenty second century mm. technologies that humanity will come up with. Mm. Um, you would like to think that they will be designed to be more in sync with the natural world because of an appreciation of its importance. I. Again, I hope you're right, uh, but I'm looking right here in Ireland. We have had a full collapse of our natural systems. We've we we are mm. uh, as a we're a biodiversity desert in this country, right? We have we have our lowlands, our our, our farmlands are there is they are biodiversity wipeouts. I mean, we have, for example, the 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 use of, for example, if you've got a field, a meadow of grass um, that has been used for for silage production. Yeah. The advice, if you like. Now is every three or four years as that gets a bit exhausted because of course everything's now rapid cycling. Yeah. You burn it off with glyphosate, kill everything, plow it up and reseed. Now this is the advice coming from our agricultural research agency. Mm. This is the advice you read about it in your in your agricultural press. I read about it with my head in my hands and go, yeah. oh my god! People in Dublin and in the towns have no idea. It, feel, it, fe- it feels monstrous, yeah. certainly. But I mean, you know, as does the process of slaughtering a pig, if you ever think it through. But, sure. but uh, uh, um, uh, Irish farmers will make the case that, you know, you said earlier that Ireland has a really dirty footprint mm-hmm. um, compared to other countries in the world. Our agriculture sector, though, they will argue that they are the most efficient producers of 
beef, for example. And if it's not being produced in Ireland to EU standards in a, a, a first tier agricultural country in terms of technology, etc., um, then it's going to be made somewhere else. Mm. You're not going to have the slightest impact uh, globally, except insofar as you will you will uh, make beef more carbon intensive. Yeah, I, I've heard those arguments. I, I I don't think they hold water. Um, I think as well we've been we we're not passive in this. It's not like we're saying well there's this global demand and we're just servicing it. We have Bordbia. We give them seventy million a year of taxpayers' money to go out and do the marketing. And what are Bordbia marketing? They're not marketing uh, organic oats. They're not marketing beef and dairy products yeah. all over the world. They're going to rich countries, Connor, like uh, Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia and the Chinese middle classes to sell Irish our fine milk as milk powder, so mm. that the Chinese mums can sh- can feed that to their to, to their babies. Our milk powder business is worth over a billion euros. We, now, we, we supply an astonishing percentage mm. of the, of global uh, and, um, baby milk yeah, is supplied by Ireland. Yeah. yeah. The question is, is that the business that we want to be in? Is that is that really the business? Because I think this year of all years, especially you know, stumbling out of a of a of a. Uh, the COVID crisis and stumbling into war in Europe, things that have come home to people is, right, food security. Yeah. Now, here's a here's a, a six marker. Is Ireland, you've heard Leo Varadkar, you've heard mm. Michael Martin say that, oh, Ireland is feeding 40, 50 million people. No, they're not. Uh. That is a industry talking point. Now, what they mean is 50 million people somewhere in the world have eaten an Irish product. Yeah. They have. Now, if you produce Mars bars and 50 million people have eaten one of your Mars bars, can you say that That's your Mars feeding, company yeah. is feeding 50 million people? Yeah, it's, and you, you, you can't just simplistically count the calories. No. And, yeah. you, and you're also, I mean, in a globalized world, mm. you tend to specialize. So, you know, we put mm. a lot of money into dairy because we're best in the world at dairy. Well, we didn't bother I, making sugar anymore. Mm. And now we have to import that. Yeah. And, uh, the best in the world at dairy again. Well, we would have held know, ourselves together. We're you know we're we're okay. We our our system is okay. Uh, the problem is, of course, we've far too much of it, and we've expanded. We had mm. we had a system, Connor, in, in in agriculture in Ireland, say from two thousand two thousand ten, and again, Chagas have done the research on this, where the the agricultural emissions, in line with government policy, fell steadily over that decade. Yeah. They fell by, I think, about over the decade, about 15%. It was a nice steady decline in line with, with our mm. national objectives. Then in 2011, there was a bit of a panic, if you remember, around the crash. Yeah. Everybody kind of lost their minds for yeah. a couple of years. And they went panicking around. And the, and the new white, white horse, is the wrong analogy, the new saviour was going to be untrammeled agricultural expansion. And the focus then was going to be on... Uh, applying pressure at European level mm. to have milk quotas removed because Ireland was a big player, by the way, in that yes. decision. And then we rushed into it. We're the only country in Europe that has substantially increased its dairy herd. And we have increased it by half a million dairy cows. These are enormous animals yeah. with huge impact. And we find, for example, that the water courses in the dairy intensive areas, like, for example, the southeast, mm. we now have high nitrogen levels, declining water quality, uh, with huge pressure on the land. And our livestock herd is producing 40 million tonnes of um, slurry yeah. a year, right? And this is cascading onto the land and into the into the hedgerows and causing huge environmental damage. And yeah. all of that for, for powdered milk for Chinese is that what is that is that well, the price? Is that yeah. okay I, 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 or, or for yeah. money to be crude about it well, because yeah, it, actually, but in, yeah. in, in, a, in a globalized world the tendency is for you to do what you think yeah. you're best at yeah. and to maximize that and that's one of the problems why the aggregate of it can be mm. can be so disastrous because each individual in the system is just rationally trying to maximize i completely agree and i think as well we you know that I go back to the thing I said earlier about food security, right? There's there's a couple of things that I would love to see. I grew up, by the way, on a farm. I did right? know that. Yeah. Jesse, yeah, John Gibbons, the enemy yeah. of all farmers, yeah, is actually called. So yeah. Uh, yeah, my late father, it's for like example, me on a bike. was yeah, was my late father was a, was a leading uh, activist in what was then called the NFA, which was now the Farmers Association. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, we were basically we had that we had we were raided when I was three. We were raided by the guards at six o'clock in the morning, and all our stuff taken off in vans and and really oh. scary stuff, right? So 
I do I understand. I associate the NFA with dawn raids. Oh yeah, I have to oh say. yeah. I mean, a bunch of farmers were locked up at that time. This is in nineteen. Was, was one of the big protests yeah, going on? The, the rates, the rate strike in 66, 67. And my father was right smack in the middle of that. And we, as a family, were kind of dragged into into this thing. And and it was part of my very earliest memories. And this is in the in the proverbial DNA. I get that. But what we have lost somewhere along the way is what is farming about? Farming first and foremost, mm. is about feeding ourselves and food security. And right now, if something terrible kind of were to happen, yeah. something something I can't quite describe, that meant this island had to manage its own affairs yes. without importing a million tonnes of chemical nitrogen from God knows where, yes. most of it from Russia, well, a good chunk of it from Russia, uh, without importing oil, without importing um, fossil and, gas. And, and, without, and, and without making mm. enough butter for 50 million people yeah. uh, and, produce, our, and producing no sugar at all. Yeah, but that's that's not our job. Exactly. We don't have, nobody signed us up to be the world's water producer. If that happened along the way and, and if it's useful and beneficial, but critically, the things that we don't do, right? We have the second lowest percentage of our land under organic farming systems in the European Union. It's mm. at the moment slightly below 2%. Now, basically that means 98% of our land is farmed in a way that is nature unfriendly. I'm sorry, that's a blunt way. I have a mental it. picture of taking yeah. a train across Holland mm-hmm. and just looking at seas of managed land. Yes. Where you, uh, uh, so surely we're better than that, right? No, the Dutch, in fact, are uh, the world's second largest exporter of agricultural produce. Now, some of it is kind of useless produce, for example. Tulips. Um, tulips, like flowers, yeah. like yeah. planted flowers. Sure. What they have become world leaders at is farming under glass. They have 36 yeah. square miles. Now, I don't know how to translate that into kilometers. It's probably something of the order of 80 or 90 square kilometers under glass. It is gigantic. They've developed hydroponic systems. And of course, the beauty mm. of farming under glass, first of all, there's no more productive use of a, you know, a chunk of land. Let's say you and I had a hectare yeah. each and we have to survive, right? And, and we have no external inputs. And we, we've got to figure out how to survive, how to get by on our hectare. I promise you, you wouldn't be putting a dairy cow on your hectare. Yeah. What you would be doing is you'd be putting up a greenhouse or a glass house and you would be growing um, your, your various uh, fruit and vegetables, right? Mm. Because that would produce enough calories, enough uh, everything for you to get by, and not only that, a surplus to feed your neighbours. Now, at the moment in Ireland, even, even the little bit of tillage that we do, the grain that we produce, most of it is being fed to cattle. It's been fed back to our livestock. So our whole agricultural system is producing grass to feed to cattle and producing um, grains to feed to cattle. At least some of the grains are making beer. So at least we can agree agree on that. It's not all wasted. It's not all wasted. I I wonder if we'll try try and be optimistic. So um, if if we look for an optimistic note to finish on, bar the fact that uh, um, the agriculture industry is also responsible for beer, which is good. That is good. Um, But is there something that we're doing right? I mean, if you you consider your daughters now, uh, I mean, uh, what are the reasons that you have got for being optimistic? Sure. Like I said earlier, we live in a stable, democratic country, which for all its flaws, and we all give out about them, this is one of the best countries in the world to live. Yeah, It's one of the countries in the world that has the best record in terms of human rights, in terms of the rights of women, the rights of minorities. Now, we've come a long way, but we live in a country that's almost unrecognizable to the 18-year-old version of me. We've made so much progress and I'm so thrilled that my kids are growing up in a much more inclusive, in a much more tolerant Ireland than than I Much more self-confident Ireland as well. And a more outward looking and a more self-confident Ireland. And these are the good things. We're, whether we like it or not, we're heading into really tough times ahead. Mm. It's just no way, no way around it. We're facing into resource crises, this on a global level, water crises. As the temperature ratchets up over the next 10, 15 years, we're going to see an awful lot more warfare in the world, unfortunately, mm. right? An awful lot more. The Ukraine is like a, a tasting menu, right? Uh, and to put that into very briefly mm. into numbers, the UN calculates that by 2050, their estimate is we'd be looking at uh, 1 billion climate refugees. Now, there was another study, yeah. Connor, that was done in 2020, which I reported on at the time, and this was a calculation that areas of the world that are currently home to 3 billion people mm. will be uninhabitable by 2070 on current projections. That leaves us facing uh, a migration crisis 
the likes of which the world has never seen. If you think yeah. of Ukraine, at the moment we're looking at 10 million people displaced and yeah. it's catastrophic and it's disastrous and we will do our best. Now, multiply that by 300 and you're looking at yeah. 2070 projections. Now, 2070 into the future is simply, if you go backwards, it's back to when I was starting well, primary school. Well, it's, uh, well, it, it, it's, it's closer to us in time than the moon landings. Um, exactly. are behind us yeah. um, so on that cheerful note <laughs> on that cheerful note but as I say Connor, to finish yeah. up on a, on a you know we live in in many respects in the best possible world we have opportunities to, 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 take, to take action and to lead and as a small country with a large global influence I think we have a chance to be that that good voice in international affairs you know I think of a figures like Mary Robinson we have overproduced in leadership now and I think that's something we can all be proud of. And on the climate issue, the one thing is our common humanity. We're all in this together, and hopefully we'll 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 stumble through it and uh, and, and 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 keep on trucking in into the the late twenty first century. John, thank you very much. There you go. That's environmental activist, journalist, and businessman John Gibbons. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please check out previous episodes where you'll find chats with people like Shane Ross, Teresa Mannion, Ivan Yates, George Hook and others. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. Until next time, drive safely, live happily and come back and see us again. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.